0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe.
1: I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah! There's a key! Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi, where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. Hi, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm
2: Kirk Hastings.
1: And also with us today is Kevin Harold. Hello, Kevin. Hello, gentlemen. We are going to be talking today about the meaning of life. Once again, we're continuing on with our series about the meaning of life, and can you discover the meaning of life simply through logic and thinking about the things that we can know for certain. Check us out at our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number for faith.com, where you can listen to archive shows, or you can find us on iTunes in the podcast section. Just type in evidence for faith. If you'd like to email us, you can reach us at email at evidenceforfaith.com or Check out the Roshio Christi website at roshiochristi.org. Well, Kirk, we have a great topic today to continue. We also have a guest who we'll bring online in a minute, but you have a quote for the day.
2: Yes, or the quote of the week, whichever way you want to state that. And this quote is actually from the Bible, from the New Testament. I thought this would be appropriate, so I'm going to use it today. And it begins this way, it says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. Hard to believe that was written uh, a couple thousand years ago.
1: (laughs) Yep, it does seem like today, today's newspapers. Well, I do have an interesting news item that I found. We talked in the past about the Shroud of Turin, and we had Gary Habermas on, and I think he also discussed the Shroud of Turin with us. But the last explanation for the images that I thought seemed to be hold the most water was the idea that the image might have been made by the ammonia gas being given off by a dead body but it looks like that has been now further there's further information looks like that's been de- debunked and the researchers are saying that radiation could have caused the image on the Shroud of Turin so this is from a recent article by Professor Fonti published in the Journal of Imaging Science and Technology and he argues that something called a corona discharge effect has they've been able to use that to make images that are like the shroud so corona discharge I had to look that one up never heard of that before but it's apparently it's a form of electrical discharge it's something that happens in very very high voltages and it basically ionizes the air around the conductors so apparently, just uh, some brief items from this article, there were there have been many interesting hypotheses about what made the images, and some re- reproductions have been ta- uh, obtained that kind of similarly look like, at least on a macro level, that kind of negative image that's on the Shroud of Turin. But nothing has been able to match the microscopic findings until now, so... It says here, many academics have presented excellent artistic copies from a a macroscopic perspective, but unfortunately, these fail to represent a number of microscopic elements, making the final result valueless. So Dr. Fanti talks about his experiments. He says, they required voltages measuring at approximately 500,000 volts in order to obtain shroud-like images. These seem to provide an answer to all the unique characteristics of the images of the body on the shroud, even though in order to get such a large figure as the one depicted on the shroud, you would need voltages of up to tens of millions of volts. (laughs) So that uh, is very, very interesting. So we'll see how that research continues to uh,
2: evolve as we go along. So it was an electrical discharge that brought Jesus back to life,
1: huh? (laughs) A very interesting possibility.
2: We will... (laughs) See how that
1: that research follows up. Well, we have a guest that is on the line because there's something happening next weekend in Washington, D.C. So we've invited Tom Gilson to tell us all about it. Tom, are you there? I'm here. Good afternoon. Tom, it's good to talk to you again. Tom and I met at at the uh, apologetics conference in Charlotte last year. Tom is a ministry strategist and author on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ and he's currently on loan to Breakpoint and the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He works as a writer and developing strategies for Breakpoint's worldview ministry and he and his family live in Yorktown, Virginia. So welcome to Evidence for Faith, Tom. Thank you. It's good to be
3: here. And as we begin here, I need to mention that while I was waiting to be brought on the show, I lost audio from you a couple of times. And if that happens, I'll call in from another phone
1: line immediately. All right. Well, so far you sound really good right now. So well, that's, Tom, that's you've really been working interesting.
2: On... That's interesting that he's from uh, Yorktown, Virginia, because right. my wife and I are going down to Williamsburg, Virginia, and Yorktown next week. We're going well, to be there for a week on vacation.
1: Stop in and say hi.
2: I'll have to wait. Yeah, <laughs> All
1: right. Well, Tom is working on a project that surrounds this atheist rally that's going to be at Washington, D.C. next week. Kirk, do you know about this atheist rally?
2: Yes, I've heard of it.
1: So, Tom, can you tell us a little bit about what this project entails? Sure. It is uh,
3: the rally that... Uh, you are speaking of there, is the Reason Rally, they're calling it, and it's being headlined by Richard Dawkins, the atheist extraordinaire, author of The God Delusion from the UK. And a whole bunch of, of atheistic groups are coming together for what they're calling a celebration of godlessness. They're expecting something like 30,000 people on the National Mall in Washington. And what I'm involved in in, in uh, preparing for a response for that goes back... Uh, I, I heard about the Reason Rally, Of last December sometime, and it occurred to me that their name that they chose for that is unfortunate from their perspective, because I've had considerable interaction with atheists in their writings, their debates, uh, online uh, back and forth with many of them, and they're not very good at reasoning. Their uh, arguments are riddled with fallacies, with appeals to emotion, and to selective evidence, and so... I woke up one morning last December and thought, somebody should write a book, but there isn't enough time, and then I realized I know some people who could pull together and write a book, and we could publish it electronically, if God permits, and uh, and we could do it in time. And amazingly enough, by the grace of God, the book called True Reason, Christian Responses to the Challenge of Atheism, came out on Amazon last Monday. That's part of the response, and the other part is we're calling True Reason also, and that's, um, you can you can get to either of these online through truereason.org. truereason.org, it's a uh, plan for uh, a group of Christians, we don't know how many exactly yet, but to unite and gather and, and bring a reasoned and reasonable presence of Christianity to the Reason Rally.
1: Well, let's talk about the book first. I bought it off of Kindle, it's only $3, so I recommend that our listeners go and get it. It's got a lot of, the subtitle is called Christian Responses to the Challenge of Atheism, and I've started uh, one or two of the chapters. It looks really good. Do you want to talk about, a little bit about what's in the book and exactly what kinds of arguments? I'm pleasantly surprised to see how well done it appears to be. You have strong authors here and good topics.
3: It has been a treat to work on this. I was privileged to be the, the I guess you might call it the coordinating editor, general editor, managing editor, friend from uh, the Boston area named Carson Whitenauer. Um, Carson is the co-editor, but we have authors including William Lane Craig, um, David Marshall, David Wood, Sean McDowell, and and um, 13 in all. And what we've done in this book is, in the first part of it, we have looked at whether atheists are uh, justified in claiming that they're the party of reason the defenders of reason and we find that they as i hinted at earlier i mentioned briefly earlier we find that they don't do reason very well in the sense of being able to uh move from one end of a line of thought to the other end without stumbling over fallacies right but just to show that they that they're not good at reason is, is hardly satisfying. We also show that reason itself fits within the Christian or theistic framework of looking at the world, and we show that Christianity has a reasonable approach to, to, uh, to life. We have that Christianity is reasonable in the way it deals with human beings.
1: Well, I can testify to the irrationality of many atheists, even self-proclaimed leaders of atheism. I regularly listen to atheist podcasts and uh, go to atheist websites, and I'm constantly amazed at uh, some of the mistakes they make and pronouncements that they make about philosophy and about logic and some of the arguments, and they just get things so wrong it's actually a little humorous.
3: It, it's sad, too, though. And yeah. Alvin Flanagan, who's you know many regard to be the premier Christian philosopher alive today, has he, he has a sense of humor, but he knows when to use it and when not to use it. But he labeled Dawkins, Richard Dawkins' arguments, as sophomoric, except for he was concerned about the, the uh, insult that that would pose to sophomores. <laughs>
2: um,
3: and it's sad but true. Not only that, but Dawkins, who was the, the Oxford University professor for the public understanding of science, uses science very selectively. He argues in his book, The God Delusion, that raising children to believe in religion is child abuse. He, he says the same thing online in a, an article on his website called Re- uh, Religion's Real Child Abuse. He says it's really child abuse. But that's actually uh, a sociologically, psych- psychologically testable, empirically testable claim that turns out to be the opposite of the truth. That's science that he's ignoring, because it doesn't, you know, it's just inconvenient science for him.
1: So, Tom, uh, what kinds of uh, articles, what kinds of arguments and things are in the book that somebody could look forward to uh, for only $3 on the Kindle uh, Amazon website?
3: Well, they could see things like what we've just been, been talking about, where we point out the um, the failures of atheism to represent and to practice reason successfully. So we argue that they don't own the name of reason and doesn't fit on them very well. And then uh, Peter Grice and David Marshall, um, David Wood, too, they go into the, uh, the ability of of reason to even fit within the, the naturalistic or the atheistic uh, time frame and um, or, or not time frame but, but frame of mind mm-hmm. um, Carson Whitenauer covers that in a different way in his chapter that atheism and um, reason don't go well together yeah. atheism, Can you explain that a little bit? I
1: think that's a terrific argument so I'm sure our listeners would love to hear that Why is okay. atheism incompatible with rationality?
3: Well it For one thing, it assumes that the world came from a mindless source. And so the question would be, where did mind and rationality come from? It assumes that the world is the kind of, or rather, it doesn't assume, but it raises the question, where did rationality arise from out of all this mindlessness, this uh, um, what's essentially a mechanistic um, reality where nothing happens except according to natural law and chance, Neither of which is rational. Neither of which proceeds from one end of an argument to the other by way of logical inference. Where does it come from? Whereas in Christianity we have the the understanding that the world came from a rational source. That's one line of 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 uh, that's one way of looking at that question. There are others, and uh, more than we could get into in a short amount
1: of time. Right. Well, how then is this? project, this book, going to be used as a part of the ministry to the Reason Rally?
3: What we're hoping to do there is still, we're still exploring what we can do in terms of what the National Park Service is going to let us do. We've had some pushbacks, even from the president of one of the atheist groups, who said that we weren't going to be allowed to do anything we planned to do there. Turns out he was bluffing. He was just, uh, you yeah, know, the, the Park Service and the, and the even the U.S. Constitution give us rights to do what we plan to do there. What we would like to do, though, is to distribute written, printed material that would point people towards the book True Reason, and um, that it would give them uh, the, the people there a, a reason to look into whether reason really fits, and they can go to our book and look at it. The book has also served as a platform for us to um, do some stuff in advance, which is media exposure, some of which um, I had an opportunity to submit an op-ed to one of the nation's major newspapers. I won't say which because they haven't guaranteed they'll print it yet. However, they did request it, so I think they will. And when that hits, if it hits, it will get their attention, and they will hear us say in that that, that they're not competent at reason, reasoning. And that will, that will put the, the whole discussion on a much more public and um, much a higher uh, level of awareness for them. They'll have to respond to it,
2: Tom. How about a huge billboard outside their meeting place advertising the book? <laughs> Pardon me. How about a huge billboard outside the uh, uh, the atheist meeting place advertising oh, your book?
3: Yeah, we would like to do that, but they're meeting on the National Mall, so you know we really couldn't oh, do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's why they they can't tell us to stay out either. That's that's federal public property. That's that's our land. Well, Not you could there. send
2: you could send a banner plane over you know overhead with a uh, a banner advertising your book.
3: Well, there's a great idea. <laughs> we'll need to get some money together real quick for that. You can talk to your listeners about
2: that. Attach it to a kite or something. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, Tom, if people did want to help out, if they would like to donate to this cause. Um, or find out more information, or maybe even join you in ministering down there. Uh, where would they contact you?
3: The easiest way to do it is on the internet at truereason.org. And if you visit that page, you'll see just a real simple choice. You can visit, or, or you can click on the on the side that takes you to the uh, information about the book True Reason, or you can click on the other side that takes you to the part of the website that talks about the outreach to the Reason Rally. And on the Reason Rally Outreach side is where we're also accepting donations to help pay for these materials. But TrueReason.org is the way to get to either one of those, um, either either one of those initiatives.
1: Well, Tom, we uh, have a lot of atheist listeners to the program. We get emails from them all the time, and I don't want to give them the impression that the purpose of this outreach is to make atheists look bad. What is the real reason that you're doing this?
3: The real reason we're doing this is, we don't want to make the atheists look bad, but we, do, we, we actually do want to convey the message that they do not have ownership on the term reason. But that's not just because we want to beat them up over the term. What we want to show them is that Christianity is reasonable. Christianity is reasoned. Christianity is human. And that, you know, Jesus came as a human. Christianity is good that's actually, and, and that's the, the part of the book I didn't get to, to describe to you as I was going through some of the arguments of the, of the book. We, we do come around at the end of the book to saying that we're not just bashing one thing, we're also saying there's something very good available in the world. It's, it's very good, it's very reasonable, it comes
1: from God, and it's good. Wonderful. Well, Tom Gilson, it's terrific to have you on the show. Good talking to you again, and good luck with this project.
2: Thank you uh, Tom, for being with us. real quick before you go, I have one last question. Okay. Uh, I don't own a Kindle or anything like that. Is there a way to download this book like as a Word file or a PDF file or something like that?
3: What you can do is if you go to our website, truereason.org, and click on the book side and, and the part where you can buy it, you'll also see instructions on how to do that using Kindle or Nook software on your computer. We don't have a PDF version available, but you can Uh, download free software and easy-to-use software and read it on your screen. Uh, Any computer or mobile device.
1: Okay, great. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking with you. Great. We've been talking with Tom Gilson, a ministry strategist and author on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, on loan to Breakpoint. And Breakpoint is one of our great ministries that we love to quote from their emails all the time.
2: Yes, and I'm well familiar with Campus Crusade for Christ because I became a Christian through them 30-some and years ago. And so did I. Really?
1: Yes, yep. The no. guy who took me to a Bible bookstore was the guy who from Campus Crusade who I was attending his Bible study.
2: No kidding. So we're yep. both alumni.
1: I tell you. Well, let's get into the main topic. For those who are just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. We're talking about the meaning of life and how you can discover the meaning of life through logic and strictly sticking to the things that you can know for certain. All right, Kirk, we have been covering the book called Me the Professor, Fuzzy and the Meaning of Life by David Pensgard, and it goes through a lot of philosophical arguments to try to discover the meaning of life. So we're going to jump right back into that. I think this is number five in our series, and we left off Last week, with the idea that God must be a single unity, a, an entity, He's not, it's not the case that supernaturalism is a bunch of mini-gods, kind of a, a pantheism or a polytheism, but that there must be one God. So, there are a lot of polytheistic religions So now that we know that God must be one, that gets rid of a lot of the religions that were on our list to consider. So tribal religions and animistic religions, Hinduism, and one that people don't often realize is a polytheistic religion is Mormonism. So except for Mormonism, you might notice that most of the others are also pantheistic, which last week we showed that also cannot be correct. So that's two strikes against them. And now we've really eliminated most of the religions and worldviews that exist as possible considerations that might be able to tell us a little bit about God. So, we were looking at different categories like atheism versus theism, and then pantheism versus supernaturalism, and then polytheism versus monotheism. We could continue on. To so look at a bunch of different categories like that and try to even further subdivide. But the problem is it gets really complex, and we're trying to do this as simply as possible, just walking step by step through the idea of can we figure out the meaning of life using logic and what we can know for certain. So we, at this point, we just have to realize that any religion that denies anything that we know for certain about the universe or God must be false. Everybody good with that? I'm good with it. Okay. Well, Kirk, let's review for the listeners maybe who hadn't heard the previous podcast. Can you run through, we are up to now, 26 things that we can know for
2: certain. Right.
1: Just based on using logic and only those things that we can know for certain.
2: Okay. I'm going to run through these real quick. Number one was you are thinking. Number two was thinkers exist. Number three is you exist. Number four, your thoughts require the passage of time. Number five was you exist in time. Number six was beginnings and endings are possible. Number seven, the outside world, outside of yourself, exists. Number eight, all events are caused. Number nine, the entropy of the universe is always increasing. Number 10, The universe, therefore, is winding down. Number eleven, the universe had a beginning. Number twelve, the presence of motion requires an original mover or a prime mover. Number thirteen, the presence of complexity requires a designer. Number fourteen, the universe could not have begun on its own. Number fifteen, the universe is unable to sustain itself. Number 16, our universe is inadequate, it cannot stand alone. Number 17, there must be more than that, which we call the supernatural. Number 18, something supernatural ordered our universe. Number 19, that something was the prime mover. Number 20, that prime mover, in order to do what it did, must be omnipotent. Number 21, it also must be eternal. Number twenty two, it also must be infinitely intelligent. Number twenty three, it is also omniscient. Number twenty four, God exists. Number twenty five, all philosophies that deny the existence of God must be incorrect. And number twenty six, all pantheistic religions are incorrect.
1: Alright. So that means we can add now dun dun dun, 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 dun. Number 27, all polytheistic religions are incorrect. Okay. So we've gotten up to 27 things that we can know for certain. So at this point in the discussion, our author, David Pensgard, says it's a good time to talk about agnosticism, right? So what's agnosticism?
2: Okay. Well, now, who,
1: agnosticism this, is just... A claim to ignorance, right? I don't know.
2: This is something that Richard Dawkins has recently admitted to.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah, he doesn't actually know for certain that God does not exist. So he fits into the category of agnostic.
2: And all the atheists are upset that he admitted that.
1: (laughs) That's right. So it's the belief that it's impossible to know if you're strong agnostic it's the belief that you're it's impossible to know if god exists and let alone know any details about him so agnostics don't say that god does not exist they just believe that it's impossible to find out okay so that is a possibility but there's really a couple of forms of agnosticism i said strong agnosticism there's a soft agnosticism so for this discussion let's divide the two parts of agnosticism, the kind of it's impossible to know if God exists type of agnosticism to the, uh, and that it's impossible to know details about God form. Okay, so let's divide it up that way. Well, since we've already determined that God does exist, then the first part of that agnosticism can be ruled out. Right. Right. That agnosticism that said it's impossible to know if God exists, that must be false because we do know for certain that God exists. Right. Based on logic and those things about the universe and about reason that we can know for certain. Right. So that leaves us with only one question, right? Is it possible to know any details about God? Right. Are any of the remaining religions correct? Or are we just stuck not knowing about God? And I guess if God had decided not to tell us about himself, then we'd kind of be, be stuck that way. You know, I mean, it's right. kind of like, you know, he's such an, a different being from us, so, so much higher than us. It'd be very hard for us to figure out much more about him than the, that list of characteristics like omniscience and things. It's kind of like uh, if you have a dog, you know, how much does your dog really know about you? <laughs> well, you know, I guess if you if you never interacted with the dog, then it would know even less about you. But if you interacted with the dog, it might know some things about you. It might know that you cared about it. it might know that you were the source of its food, right uh, things like that. So there's a lot that the dog could figure out from you if you chose to interact with the dog with the dog. So in the same right. sort of way. I think that people can, if, if God does choose to interact with us, we can figure out a lot of things about him. And of course, if he chose to actually speak with us, maybe through some kind of revelation, of course, then we could know. But that's uh, that might be jumping the gun here. So let's just say that, you know, at this final part of the thought experiment, logically that we can say one thing for sure, and that is that that second part of agnosticism can be proven false. We can know that it's possible to know things if any of the remaining religions can be proven true. So if one of the remaining religions is proven true, then that means that God did speak to us, did speak to the human race.
2: We do know something about him then.
1: Right. So that actually gives us now another item that we know for certain. (laughs) like the sound effects we have over on here?
2: Yeah, I'll tell you they're really uh, first rate.
1: <laughs> Aren't they? I tell you that was Kevin doing that with his left nostril.
2: <laughs> Economical too.
1: <laughs> so, number 28, agnosticism is incorrect if any religion is correct. Okay? <laughs> right?
2: Right. Uh, A or
0: non-A, right? Right. But that would probably bring up the first question that we then need to ask is what religions are left?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So after we get now, rid of all the polytheistic ones, think of at least one. But there's actually more than just one. Okay. Right. Okay. Well, let's think now. Uh, we know that they're going to be supernatural, right? Because we came up with that. We also know that they're going to be monotheistic. So, Kirk, can you think of
2: three? Uh, gee. Um. Well. Don't look at your notes. <laughs> If uh, we discount all the polytheistic religions, and we discount all the pantheistic religions, and we discount agnosticism, then I can only think of three that would be left. That would be Judaism, Christianity, and Islam.
1: That's right. That's right. So that is really amazing. I mean, when we started this thought experiment of David Pencard, you know did you think that we would really come down to this that we are down now to three possibly correct religions Judaism Christianity and Islam and I guess so there's actually four possibilities because you have to consider maybe none of them are right so either God is unknowable or he is as Judaism describes him or he is as Christianity describes him or he could be Allah the God of Islam okay all right so now We are stuck. How are we going to decide this? All right. First of all, I guess we should start out by giving a little background. In fact, there's three of us here for the show, so why don't we each pick one? Let's do them in chronological order. So, Kirk, you want to give us a little description about Judaism?
2: Sure. Let's see. Judaism in 20 words or less. Okay, according to Judaism's historical books written by a man named Moses and a few prophets, God created the universe and all things in it, even people, in six days. Then, uh, let's see, then the first two people turned away from God by committing the first sin, and they called this event the Fall, and it was at that point that death and decay entered the world. However, God promised he would one day send a Messiah who would allow for people to escape spiritual death and kind of fix things from the way we messed them up. So, I guess according to Judaism, mankind is made up of body and spirit, and when the body dies, the spirit's left, and the spirit then goes to one of two places, either hell or paradise. And one last detail I could add is that uh, Jews, even though they believe in a Messiah, they don't believe the Messiah has come yet.
1: Right. Is that okay, so that's, uh, sum yeah, it up. that's Judaism in a nutshell. Okay. <laughs> All right, so now let's look at Christianity. Kevin, you want to give us a rundown on Christianity? Sure. I think the first thing it says is
0: dependent upon Judaism's historical books. In a way, I guess you could say it's similar and it's tied to Judaism, but distinct in its message. For Christians believe that the Messiah has come already, and this Messiah's name is Jesus. Judaism claims the Messiah only for themselves, but Christianity claims the Messiah came for everyone. Jesus did conquer death just as God had promised He would. Us and you even uh, hinted that earlier with your bit on the shroud, He died and came back to life. And in doing this, He took upon Himself penalties for all the moral crimes, for the sin that was ever committed against God by you and I, by mankind. And each individual thus needs to ask God to be included in this process, or else they have to pay the penalties for their crimes and their condition all by themselves. And Christianity claims to complete the story that Judaism began by means of this Messiah, Jesus.
1: All right. So that leaves Islam for me. So um, Islam is about a prophet by the name of Muhammad who began receiving messages from God who he called Allah in around A.D. 610. And these revelations or visions came to him in small pieces over the next 22 years. So. Islam had a little difficulty starting out, but eventually it grew to be very large, and its beliefs center around the collection of these revelations given to Muhammad called the Quran. So Islam also teaches that Allah created all things in six days. First Allah created other beings, other spiritual beings, and then he formed man from clay, a sperm drop, and a clot of blood. Allah gave man mental abilities and breathed into him some of his spiritual attributes. And then Allah told the other beings to submit to man. But Satan and some of the other beings refused and from that point on were determined to destroy mankind. So according to the Quran, a Messiah was never promised or needed because there never was a fall from perfection. Things were created as they still are. There hasn't been a fall, so therefore there's no need to be restored. According to the Quran, perfection includes pain and suffering. So the universe that's just a part of the universe, the way God made it originally. In the future, that pain and suffering will end. But pain and suffering were created by Allah for the purpose of spiritual purification. And this includes all the pain and suffering in this life and in the next. So uh, according to Islam, since the beginning, Allah has sent prophets to guide mankind away from evil behavior so that they wouldn't go to hell. And these were some of the same prophets who wrote the Jewish and Christian scriptures. But Muslims today believe that those scriptures now have tremendous errors in them. And that's why they don't agree with the Quran on most issues. So there you have it. That's Judaism. Christianity and Islam explained in extremely simple terms according to David Pensgard. Well if you're just joining us you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks
2: and I'm Kirk Hastings. I'm Kevin Harrell
1: and we're talking about The Meaning of Life, a book by David Pensgard and we're trying to see if we can do this thought experiment where we go along just thinking about things we can know for certain, and using only logic to determine if we can learn anything new. Well, we've discovered that there's these three religions. One of them might be true, or none of them might be true. Agnosticism might be true. It might be that we just can't learn anything about God. So now what? You know, Kirk, if we tried to compare and contrast these three religions, we could be talking for another year. Oh, uh, easily. yeah so it'd be very time-consuming and very difficult you know all kinds of questions would come up there'd be answers and counter answers but it turns out that there's actually a simpler way and this is a very interesting approach that david Pennsgard's taken in his book because there's one question whose answer can distinguish between all of these religions efficiently there's one thing that they have something to say about and they, all three of them have a different answer. So, in order for them to be true, they'd have to be right about this particular question. Wow. I wa- yeah.
2: And what is that question? I wonder if any question? of our listeners
1: can think what that question might be. It's actually a question that Jesus posed to his disciples, right? Who do uh-huh. people say that I am? Right. So, if we ask that question of these three religions, who and what was Jesus it's possible that we will find that one of them is correct. So there's there's one of three possibilities now. Christianity says that Jesus is the Messiah, God the Son in the flesh. Okay, so we could find that that is true. Islam insists that Jesus is only a prophet of Allah, no more and no less. So we may find that that is true. And Judaism claims that he was just a man, Maybe crazy, maybe eccentric, or just unlucky, but a man nonetheless. So, even though we ask this question, there still has to be an answer. I mean, there must be some answer. Maybe the answer is none of the above, right? But it's, all it's have interesting. to do is find that answer, and we'll be able to distinguish between those three religions.
2: It's interesting that you have three different viewpoints there that are all pretty much contradictory to one another.
1: Yeah, that's right. They They don't match up too well. So that really gives us some promise then that we may, if we focus on this question of who is Jesus, maybe we will be able to distinguish between those uh, religions. So that, I think, then warrants that this question now will become one of our numbered concepts. Number 29, who is Jesus? Okay.
0: I think this question is very important because, like Kirk, you said, Kirk, The three options are very opposed to each other, very contradictory. You can't just mush them all together and say they say the same thing. And it's important because the claim against Christianity is often exclusiveness. But the point is, if you're asking what we can know for certain, what we can know for certain is true, then it is going to be something that. Is only true of one of these options.
2: Right. I, I think it's a lot of people will say, oh, all religions are basically the same and they all lead you in the same direction to the same God. Well, I think what this idea that we just brought up, these three different definitions of who Jesus was and who he claimed to be, I think kind of uh, junks that theory. These, these three religions are based on very different ideas about who Jesus is, and they don't all lead to the same place at all.
1: Right, yeah, so, uh, so that again is another knock against some of the religions that try to combine them all, right? There are some religions out there that say that all three of these major religions are true, and maybe add in a few uh, extra other religions, right? So, um, unfortunately—
2: they really have to take a lot away from these three religions in order to make them fit together because they don't.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Yeah, if you, um, I guess if you take the religions and hack them into pieces, you might be able to (laughs) forge together some kind of compromise between all three. But really, if you look at the true initial teachings of the three religions, um, they unfortunately are incompatible. I think, I think the most compatible would be between Judaism and Christianity because there is really only one critical cutting point, and that is, again, it's back to that question, who is Jesus? Number 29, who is Jesus?
2: Right.
0: And I think a person of the Islamic faith would be greatly offended if we said that all three are saying the same thing because they hold to their own distinctiveness.
1: That's right, and, and they don't believe, I heard one of the atheist podcasts that I was listening to just a couple of days ago, a Muslim man called in to explain Islam to them, and uh, he was, actually, it was interesting, because he was taking the blind faith viewpoint, but he said, they asked him, you know, is, is Allah the same as the God of the Jews or the Christians, and he said no, you know, that the, it's not the same, that Allah has no son, for one thing, so it's definitely a different God from Christianity, so... right. So, yeah, I think they would be, I think you're right, Kevin, they would be insulted. The the people um, that
2: say all these three religions are basically the same really know very little about any of them in order to say that. Good point. Yeah,
1: yes. yeah, frequently they do. Now, I do want to say that there are some similarities, and we don't want to downplay that. Sure. Many of the moral values are very similar. Right. So, that is, you know, a great thing. So, you know, I mean... Uh, I would absolutely vote for a Jewish man to become president so you know we share a lot of values so in that sense I think you can say that many religions are similar but really when it comes down to it if you like you say if you know much about them then they, it's obvious that they're not the same at all. So in answering this question then who is Jesus if he was just a man then We should find that there's no special, when we look at him historically, we should find that there's no special supernatural or divine events that ever occurred near, by, or through him. Okay, right? That's one thing that we could find. Okay, he was just a man. If he was a prophet of Allah, then we should find that there were some supernatural events surrounding him, okay, like maybe performing miracles or maybe he might have prophesied something that has come to fruition because he was supposed to be a prophet. So that is a possibility. Or if he was the Son of God, the Messiah, then the most important person, whoever walked the earth, then you'd expect that there would be quite a bit of evidence to verify that this was so. I mean, that's pretty a pretty astounding claim. So, to discover if someone is the Messiah, what we have to do is look at the source material, right? And the source material is the Old Testament.
2: Okay. That's what All tells right, so, us about the Messiah and who he is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, so, the question is, also you could word it, who is the Messiah? Sure. Right? So, who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? We need to see if Jesus, the historical Jesus, fits the descriptions of the Messiah that are in Judaism. Okay. Okay? Now, we should point out that it's not enough that he might fulfill some of them, right? He has to fulfill all of the descriptions of the Messiah. Sure. Right? I mean, we have to be certain that he is the Messiah, uh, you know, because what we're trying to do is to be certain. So when we're looking at the criteria, we want to be sure that they're unambiguous, that they reflect supernatural, unique, or even divine verification, right? There has to be some way that we can see there is God's stamp of approval or, you know, God's evidence that that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Otherwise, you know, if that's not true, then we really ought to consider the Old Testament as suspicious, Right. From a Christian point of view, you know the way Islam claims that there never really was anything about a a Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay. Well, now this takes us back then to something that we have covered in past shows. We looked at some of the prophecies about the Messiah. So let's talk about that for a bit. We've got a about four, three, four minutes left in the show. So we talked about some of the predictions about the Messiah that are in the Old Testament. And one of them is a really fascinating prediction in the book of Daniel. This is found in Daniel 9, 24 through 25. Okay? And this is probably one of the most specific prophecies ever written because in this prophecy it gives the exact date that the Messiah would appear. Wow. Now, so let's go into that. So it's Daniel 9, 24, and 25. Now, there's a little bit of controversy around this because it's a little bit hard to understand from the the text itself because there were different historical calendars and there were different dating methods. So when you translate from the Scripture, you have to translate those dating methods in order to bring it up to today so that people can understand it. Sure. So the nice thing is that other people have done that for us other people have translated it. And it turns out that Daniel gives us the exact date that the Messiah would come. So, Kevin, if you can read for us Daniel 9, 24 through 25, um, we'll see what it says and we'll see what if we can figure out the year that the Messiah is supposed to come.
0: All right. Daniel 9 reads, 70 weeks of years or four hundred and ninety years are decreed upon your people and upon your holy city Jerusalem, to finish and put an end to transgression, to seal up and make full the measure of sin, to purge away and make expiation and reconciliation for sin, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, permanent spiritual and moral rectitude in every area and relation, and to seal up vision and prophecy and profit, and to anoint a holy of holies. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the coming of the anointed one, a prince, shall be seven weeks of years and sixty-two weeks of years. It shall be built again with city square and moat but in troublous times.
1: All right, so all that concludes into this simple formula that 483 years after the decree of Artaxerxes in 454 B.C., you get A.D. 30. And it just so happens that this was the same period of time that Jesus taught in Israel So that at the end of this period of time, almost every Jew in Jerusalem was hailing Jesus as Messiah on the first Palm Sunday. They knew about this prophecy, and that's why there were so many children born during this time frame whose name was Jesus. So, but at the end of that very same week, Jesus was executed. And the prophecy said, then after the 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So, in other words he would be executed. This is an amazing fulfillment of prophecy, which was made almost 500 years earlier. Hmm. So we want, we're want we not going to stop there. We're at the end of the show for today, but we're going to look at a lot more hmm. prophecies in the next show and see if Jesus matches them. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Send your comments or questions with the call letters of the station that you listen to us on to email at evidenceforfaith.com and please join us again next week for more reasons to believe and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. <laughs>